Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Welcome back to Matan's One-on-One Parsha podcast, where we spend about 30 minutes discussing deep thematic points about the Parsha. Our series on Bamidbar is titled, Growing Pains, The Journey Towards Responsibility. Each episode explores the manner in which the Parsha reflects the maturation of the people and Moshe's leadership during the wilderness period. Check out the Matan website for details about our upcoming summer program, which begins on June 25th, titled Kings, Queens, and Jacks, which studies the role of Jewish governing powers in Jewish thought and texts and includes weekly tours. If you would like to sponsor a podcast episode in honor memory of a loved one, please contact the Matan office via telephone or email us at podcast at matan.org.il. These sponsorships enable us to keep creating new content, so if you have deliberated until now, don't hesitate to be in touch. Parshat Korach hinges on a few stories of rebellion represented by Korach's vocal antagonism. The opposition rebellion is really comprised of four factions. The Levites against Aaron, the Tanaviram against Moshe, the Nesi'im or the princes against Aaron, and the entire community against Moshe and Aaron. There's some debate about how to divide that, but we'll go with that explanation for now. While in Parshat Baalotcha, we spoke about the pitfalls of Moshe's leadership through the prism of his internal emotional breakdown. Here the challenges emerge externally to him, and his responses are varied, both in approach and in their effectiveness. We will speak about this in today's conversation. After the challenge to Moshe and Aaron's leadership, the Parsha continues with clarification of Levitic responsibilities and the danger implicit in them if mishandled, as well as the trumot, the tithes, given to the Levites. The Parsha opens with a Levite's challenge to Moshe and then proceeds to illustrate how the division of responsibility really is held by the entire tribe. In other words, Korach wasn't seeing the facts straight. He might have had a lovely role carved out for him if he could get past not being at the helm. Another important theme of the Parsha is collective punishment. Is this something the Torah supports? A collective punishment of the rebels seems to suggest yes. However, later in the Parsha, responsibility for encroachment becomes the lot of the Levites. They can die if an Israelite encroaches on tabernacle responsibilities. The sources then are somewhat conflicted and really deserve careful analysis. Today, I welcome a new guest. Michelle Greenberg-Hobern, who is a clinical professor of law at Cardozo Law School and the founding director of the Program on Leadership at the Heyman Center for Corporate Governance. Professor Greenberg-Hobern teaches in the areas of intellectual property, transactional law, corporations, negotiation, and leadership. Previously, Professor Greenberg-Hobern served as Dean of Students at Columbia Law School, and she currently serves as lecturer in law at Columbia Law School and Columbia's Teachers College. Michelle is the facilitator of the Arev Fund, a grant-making organization. Michelle, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Oh, I'm so excited to be here. I am a big fan of your Torah, so delighted to be able to spend some time talking Torah with I'm, you. I'm really excited. And you know, one of the reasons that I reached out to you specifically for this episode is because I, I really wanted to sort of dig at this week's Parsha through the prism of, of leadership and of negotiation and sort of these these difficult areas of conflict, uh, specifically from someone who has a background uh, in in conflict from a slightly different perspective. I think that always is something that can shed new new light on the Parsha. So I'm excited to to see how, how the conversation really develops. So why don't we start first in in the Parsha itself. What what do we have going on here in terms of, of conflict? So this is actually my bat mitzvah Parsha, so I've always felt very <laughs> close to Korach, and 
almost feel like it was inevitable that I was going to end up teaching in the conflict resolution space. Um, And the set of eyes that we have to inform our lives is often the set of eyes we bring to the Torah that we're we're learning. So there are a whole bunch of things going on in this Parsha, but one is that it is there are multiple there are multiple areas of conflict and multiple challenges that seem to be conflated. So even pulling apart the psukim to understand what are the challenges, who is being challenged, and on what basis is complicated, and then why the conflict is something that not only the midrash but the mifarshim later are really delving into. So it appears that Korach is upset maybe about the kahuna, maybe about leadership, feels like he didn't get something that he wanted. Then we have Datan and Aviram, who appear to bring a second a second series of complaints, potentially around political leadership. Own famously is mentioned at the very beginning. We never see Own again. I think I did center my bat mitzvah drash around the fact that you know, the Midrash tells us that Owen's wife prevented him from, from going further into this area of Machloket. And they bring with them, not just sort of the hoi polloi, but they bring with them what the, what the psukim tell us are Nisei Haida, Kore Moev, that these are actually important people, some kind of significant people. So what's important here. I think is to note that there are many areas of political and spiritual leadership that appear to be in conflict and not insignificant. This is after the Miraglim, the spies, right? So what's also interesting to note is that moments of conflict often follow moments of transition and shift in power, right? That's something that we note ourselves very much in in our own lives. And certainly I'm here based in the States, you're based in Israel, Everywhere in the world you look, there are areas of all sorts of conflict nowadays, and they often follow periods of political or other transition, right? And that's what happened here, right? A successful leader where things seem to be progressing in one positive direction tends to be more immune from from sources of conflict than and from attacks on leadership than um, than leaders in times of great you know, both economic and political prosperity. You know, it's interesting because there that question about chronology is a big one among the commentators. Of we know that this is placed after after the story of the Meraglim, but there's a question whether or not this actually takes place before or after. And the the the, the opinions are divided and there's reasons to uh, to side with each of them. I do think that if we assume that it takes place after the story of the spies, what we also have here are a group of people who who say you know, things were looking like they were going to develop, meaning I didn't have to always stay with what I see here in the wilderness. But then all of a sudden they realize that this is what I'm stuck with for not just the whole time we'll be in the wilderness, but for the rest of my life, because some of these people won't even make it to Israel. So it's it's also the period of unrest that you had during the the uh, the Miraglim, during the spy episode. But it's also perhaps, again, if the chronology is as it appears in the, in the Psukim, is that they're all of a sudden saying, this is what I'm going to have forever. And if that's the case, then I want to rebel against it. And I want to to sort of try and change it and shift it to to a structure of leadership that, that I would like, because it's not going to disappear very quickly. I think there's also one, often a fundamental source of conflict is different notions of what is fair, right? What is fair? Who should, who get, who should be entitled? 
who should have power. But what I love about the way that the different Mefarshim are reacting to the why here, why the conflict and why now, relates to all the different sources of conflict in our own life. Is this a family dispute, right? Is it that what's going on here is that Korach is basically saying the way sort of the family shifts, like, fine, Moshe, you get something, but I come next as the eldest son of the next brother. And who are you to all of a sudden decide that your brother should get something, that Aaron should get something, or that Uziel's son, who's the youngest of the brothers, should get something. So sometimes they're family disputes, right? And what's going on often are just sort of sibling rivalries. Sometimes they're concerns about the direction of leadership, right? Okay, things look like they were going okay, but now, exactly as you said, Yosefa, we're stuck here. Like, we're going to cycle in this over and over again. That doesn't seem to be the direction forward, right? Often we care about our own status, right? And Moshe reacts to that. He says, you know, aren't, don't you have enough? Aren't you, isn't this good enough for you? But often we're reacting to the way we see ourselves situated vis-a-vis other people, right? Who's the in-group? Who's the out-group? Often we resurface old historical claims, you know, that that happened well in the past that still provide fissures. So the notion that Zatan and Aviram and On are all coming out of Shevet Ruvain, the tribe of Ruvain, and that many of the other participants in this rebellion were from Ruvain stems also from notions as to who should get political leadership, who decided, and sort of this goes back to the reversal of primogenitor and the way leadership is granted in the in in the Torah up until this point, which is the obvious the obvious inheritor is not the inheritor, right? What is the rule? If the rule gets reversed, why should the rule get reversed? Right? So these are sort of all questions like children become adults and who gets to control their destiny? What am I entitled to? What is fair? These are sort of all the questions that um, that spark that spark conflict in our own lives. You know, the the piece about Ruven here is is interesting also because we spent a lot of time talking about that theme in our episodes in Breshit. Uh, we spoke about Ruven in a way, I'm saying this kindly, but the failed Bechor, right? He's the, the failed eldest. Uh, and there are many episodes after that, this being one of them, that really that really bring that point home, that Reuven, when when had the ability to sort of step up, it doesn't end up doing that. Um, also in the desire not to settle with, uh, with all of, of Israel later on. But what's interesting about that is that it, again, it's another prism of family, meaning it's it's tribal, but it's really family. And it harkens back to that initial that initial feeling or that theme. And, and you know, I, what you said about old, you know, fissures that can sort of resurface, something that I feel uh, happens very much is that when we don't create new layers of relationship, the old fissures can resurface. Meaning if we just live with those old tropes of, of you know, the old trope of, oh, Reuven, you know, he never got what he was supposed to, right? So Reuven sort of keeps regurgitating that sense of being slighted. And if you don't rebuild a new layer or, or create a new element to your identity, whether it's as siblings or it's as, as fellow tribes, then you sort of keep reverting back to those old patterns. And I feel like you really see that here. Uh, you really see that the sort of the, 
the inner workings of the family come through, even if it's through the prism of a tribe or through the prism of it's already a later version of the family, it keeps sort of coming back to those early layers. And, and I wonder, again, we'll never know, but I wonder, you know, were they able to get past that? You have to create a deeper sort of multidimensional relationship so you don't keep seeing things through that same old prism. Right. So um, I love that you think about it in that way, because one of the ways we think about how to have a difficult conversation or what is the source of a difficult conversation or a difficult discourse relates to like your own sense of identity. And for many, many of us, and there are lots of studies around this, some of our core identity around how we deal with and interact around conflict is formed often in childhood, mm -hmm. right? When I ask people to identify the type of negotiator they are, I would say more than half the time it goes back to birth order, right? I was the middle child, so. I was the youngest brother, so. You know, I was the oldest daughter, therefore, right? So birth order is really significant. And also those identities we develop as children are very core to our own sense of self. I was the smart one right? I was the mischievous one. You know, I was the one who could get stuff done. I was the mediator. And to your point, right, there's some, there's real comfort for many of us in something that might feel really comfortable to us after a long period of time. And something also very chafing at the inability potentially to escape that. And our challenge is really to, and I would say this is our challenge also as parents, right? And, you know, in addition to our challenge as children is to think about how we layer new sources of identity, whatever those are, onto sort of old stories about who we are, right? So one of the ways to think about what's going on here with Reuven and like sort of what poked Reuven's, what pushed Reuven's buttons, right? Or shave at Reuven's buttons is Yehoshua all of a sudden pops up right? So there was this sort of other story that maybe they had gotten used to about who might be in charge if not them. But then all of a sudden, Yoshua comes out of the blue and a whole different Shevet. And, and that seems really complex to them. Like maybe they had accepted the old story about uh, ancient wrongs and those who had stepped up to leadership. But now some notion that out of a, yet another tribe comes someone who looks like they're going to be the heir apparent. I wonder if that if that stirred the pot a little so bit. So interesting. I, I never thought about that. But it's sort of like everybody's getting chosen except them, right? Like e even Ephraim, right? It's, it's just coming from from all, all directions. It's interesting, by the way, speaking about sort of going back to old tropes, you even see Moshe falling into this trap in one of his responses. Because when he goes back to the I never took anything from them, right? And it's sort of like, well, that wasn't what you were being accused of. But you see Moshe almost, again, sort of uh, regurgitating or sort of bringing up what he clearly feels was a serious undertone, that he wants everyone to know that he's not here for any personal interest. He's never been here for personal interest. He never even wanted this job. To me, this is really a callback to the initial refusal on Moshe's part. It's not the exact same language. You can't claim it as an illusion. But it's sort of this callback to Moshe saying, I, I didn't even want to be here, right? I, I, so everyone stop screaming at me, right? I am just doing what God has told me to do. Yeah, so what's really going on here is an argument about what is leadership, right? Yeah. So Moshe has always articulated a form of what we call servant leadership, right? The idea that all leadership is in the service of the followers, right? 
And there's a parallel idea of followership, which the followers here are not keeping up their ends of the bargain. And in his most famous struggle with leadership, right, like I want out of here, right, when he says that, he's talking about carrying the people. So for him, if the servant leader is is not doesn't take money, like, do you know how hard I'm working? Mm-hmm. You know, do you know I'm doing this for free? Right? Is is him saying, but that's not the kinds of leadership, he's not actually responding to what is a valid criticism of his leadership, right? Datan and Aviram are saying, the thing you were supposed to do, the political leadership you were supposed get to us provide, Israel. you actually totally messed that up. Right? Like, that's literally not happening. The shorter journey, however long we think it might be, is, is, is going to take 40 years and many of us aren't going to realize it. And the other part that's so interesting here is the other piece that Moshe says to Hashem is, I never hurt them, but Moshe is about to hurt them and then to be attacked for hurting them. Yeah, his, his response also... You're saying specifically them being swallowed up? Is that the response you're speaking about? Because Well, after they're swallowed up, right, then B'nai Israel later in this Parsha come and we're like, you just killed everybody. Yeah. Right. So I think there's a trigger here that we would also sort of, that if you analyze from the perspective, the Midrash Tanchum, I think, says the same thing. So Moshe first, right, reacts to Korach and Korach refuses to engage with him. But then Moshe reaches out to Datan Ba'avi Ram, right, in what you would say is classic negotiation steps, like, let's talk about it. Like, he, I send for you, like, you come to me, let's talk about what's going on here, right? And then Datan Ba'avi Ram actually refused to come, but instead of sort of just avoiding, they actually, right, sort of say, like, we're not coming, and send an attack without engaging. And the Midrash Tanhuma says something that, you know, negotiation theorists would say as well, that the act that if if only someone engages with you, that actually gives you a little bit of, um, uh, it calms you down a little bit. That when someone refuses to even talk to you, right, you know that the inevitable end of that, there's no potential for resolving the conflict peacefully. So there's nothing really left but some form of aggressiveness or war. And I think what pushes Moshe's button here and turns him in a way that I don't think we really see where he asks God, right, to not listen to a part of B'nai Israel, right? It's a very unusual for- formulation for Moshe, right? Al-Tefen mm-hmm. al-Minchatam, right? It's like pretty unusual. Yeah. Um, I think what pushed his buttons is that Tananavi Ram refusing to even engage with him. And so um, it's it's actually true that um, being an avoider can actually be a very successful form of conflict, of negotiation, right? You can actually win. Like the person who refuses to participate in your group project often doesn't, or your help you make your Sheva Brachot or whatever it is, often doesn't end up having to do work, right? So there is a way that um, there is a way that, that is successful, but I think that's here what pushes Moshe's buttons, like, we feel disrespected. At this point, Moshe gets very angry. And so he's not able to be emotionally composed, right, is what is what we're saying in his in his response. But the refusal to speak to him does push him over the edge. So, but what what is the advantage? Because it's not, they're not going, to, I mean, they've made him angry, but they're not going to get something out of it. They haven't made the situation better by by their refusal to, to have conversation with Moshe. So they did win rounds one here. Right. So I think that's they were able to say to to make 
a very strong political statement in a way that Korach was not able mm -hmm. to, right? So, um, but I think it was Korach, if I wasn't clear, I think it was Korach who was being the avoider and Zatan and Aviram here who were being the competitors, oh, okay. right? Who basically asserted and um, in a way without any empathy, right? And I think that assertion pushed Moshe over the over the edge here, if one wants to think about it in that way. One can contrast Yitro's criticism of Moshe's leadership with the criticism of Moshe's leadership that Korach and Hizeda are bringing here, right? Yitro shows up and he's like, this is not working, right? This is an untenable form of leadership. But the um, the maybe what Pirkei Avot is talking about in terms of machloket l'shem shemayim, the idea that this is that there are different types of conflict, and some conflict is for the greater good or the sake of heaven, and Korach is the opposite of that, is a constructiveness to it, right? Here's where I'm pointing out what's not going well, but here's a way without taking away from anyone else, says Yitro where we could do better as a community, right? And his ability to see that really shows up as someone who's an outsider, potentially someone who's a senior family member to Moshe. So Moshe has to listen to him. And who, and who right? also as doesn't want a piece for himself. That's, that's another, big, it's another big element. He's not a threat. Yitro himself isn't a threat. But yes, I think that's a great point. So that is a much more constructive form of engaging around criticisms around power right, um, than, than, than what we see here. But that conflict is healthy, right? And conflict is, is inevitable. Fissures around family and history and our own understandings. Earlier in Parshat Balotcha, when others are very nervous about the fact that we have other prophets and we're going to have 70s Kenim, whose job we're never really sure what it is as, as the Parshio continue forward. But Moshe is not threatened there either. So I would put that again in this category with the Yitro episode. And I think that it's a similar reason because in that episode, Moshe's prophetic prowess or, or, or power is not diminished by the fact that there are others who will have prophecy. But what we have in our Parsha is something that is more threatening because they they want Moshe's role to be taken away. They are looking to diminish Moshe and Aharon uh, and perhaps, you know, a, le a leading tribe. They are looking to take away. They do want to cut off a piece of the pie and not give it back. So that that's why I think this episode is is so much more chaotic. And as you said, that initial response, it doesn't it doesn't get it doesn't get rid of the problem. I think by the way, it's also the sign of a real issue. Meaning you can't just like for example, I'm thinking of, you know, if you kill a you know, ter the leader of a terrorist organization, you haven't eliminated terrorism um, because this is something that's much more, it's much more deep-seated. It's something that sort of infiltrates far beyond that leader. It might impact the morale, right? It might impact uh, a statement you're making about, about your prowess as a nation, but you haven't eliminated the basic issue, which are these ideas that are problematic and that lead to people uh, living in a very violent way and hurting others. So I think that that point is critical that, you know, those initial responses don't do anything, which is why the Parsha doesn't end there. And we have to go towards what I would say is a peaceful demonstration of who is the leading tribe. I Meaning you, the whole story of the Matot, I think also it might be a statement about the fact that sort of violent demonstrations, it's not particularly helpful, right? It might make a part, it might make one statement, but in order to make a a clear, uh, a clear cut 
illustration of how God wants the hierarchy to work, it's going to come through natural and also very peaceful means. You know, whether it's using the matot and making them as part of the mizbech, as part of the altar, to remember, sort of, to create sort of like this uh, this memory of what's happened here, and also and also the flowering of of Aharon's staff so that so that everybody is clear about who's the leader. It's a very powerful statement about what is an effective way to respond and what isn't, I think. Right, and that's, you know, the idea of restorative justice is some kind of coming together that allows people to be again in conversation with each other, right? And violent acts or eliminating the threat, like as you so thoughtfully put it, doesn't, doesn't, achieve that goal because there's been no resolution. There's just been might has been, you know, countered with countered with might. Yeah. Really what most people want is to feel heard. Yeah. Right? That's really often what it is. In our house we say, do you wanna do you wanna be helped? Do you wanna be heard? Or do you wanna be hugged? Oh my goodness. Wait because- I'm, I'm Michelle I'm writing this down. Hold on one second. <laughs> Helped, heard, or hugs. My, or my hugged. Goodness. Because we are a house of helpers. The minute you tell us something is wrong, we are problem solving. We have solutions. We are fixing it. And often that's not what you want. Mm. You want someone to say, I hear you. You feel that leadership was taken from you. You feel that, you know, you deserve this, that the rules aren't fair. And just when you understood the rules, it turns out Ephraim gets to jump in front of yeah. you, in front of you in line as well. Um, so um, it is almost impossible to achieve resolution of a conflict until you have listened to the other side. And what's so hard for us in listening is that we, um, as we listen, we often are fighting the story the other person's telling us, right? We're like, well, that's ridiculous, Mm -hmm. right? That is clearly wrong. Just think about this in terms of whoever is on the other political side of whatever the issue is um, as you, right? But our goal should be, I would say, twofold. One is to know you have to listen not to agree, but you have to listen to understand, So if you remember that you're not listening to agree, you're listening to understand, that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, I'll say three things, actually. The second piece is to think about the empathy that comes out of that. You can't assert your own opinion until you've empathized with the other Mm -hmm. side. Like make them know that you hear where they're coming from. Doesn't mean you agree with it, but you hear where they're coming from, right? And I think part of what pushed Moshe was he tried to get Zatan Baviran to come and have a conversation with him. And then when they didn't, you know, it blew it up. Um, and the third piece, and this is really critical, I think, is to always try to disentangle intention from impact, right? So we know if I hurt someone, I never in my whole life have hurt anyone on purpose. It was either, you know, I either had neutral intentions or good intentions, and that accidentally happened. But we know that when someone hurts us, they obviously intended to to hurt us, right? So if we can think about disentangling the impact on me of something the other side did from their intentions, right? The way I know that my intentions tend to be good or neutral, it's much easier to get into their story. 
Right. You're saying because you can move forward and think about the issue, but have your guard down a little bit, right? Instead of constantly being on the defensive or looking for ways to fault what what they've done. Right. I think where Yitro differed from Korach here was Yitro attacked the problem and not the people. Mm -hmm. And Datan and Aviram very, very specifically in their language are attacking Moshe directly. And I think he thinks for something that HaKadosh Baruch Hu did. It's interesting because we had our first sort of series of conflict that was around Moshe's prophetic identity. And then we had, mm-hmm. I don't, I wouldn't call it conflict, but we had the episode with him and his siblings, which also the casting some personal, personal judgment on who Moshe was, a little bit of like, you know, who does he think he is? Perhaps they know where he comes from. Again, we, we discussed that episode and the enigmatic nature of what actually happened there. And then this is sort of like our, our third round of seeing them looking at Moshe as power figure and saying something about this doesn't sit well uh, from all different dimensions, right? You or Aharon uh, or or your tribe, but that, that all of those dimensions don't sit well with us. So I think that there's something that, that really um, makes sense and that this is the most personal and painful attack on Moshe and his and his co-patriots. So that's so interesting me, to me, Yosefa. Would you say that he, because you would imagine the thing that happened with his siblings would be more personal, yeah. right? But he seemed to be able to react with empathy there. Would you say that this is the first time he has stepped away from his ability to experience empathy? No, I think he definitely had moments where he wasn't empathic for the people when they overwhelmed him with their request for food and and he was overwhelmed there. I think that Moshe and his siblings have, I think Moshe and his siblings have a very good relationship. And I think that, you know, that's also something we've, we saw Midrash a long time ago where we spoke about the idea that Moshe and Aharon are actually like the tikkun. They're really sort of the repair for the sibling relationships that we saw in the beginning of, in the, in the stories of Brishit. And I think that, that Miriam also is sort of reprising her role there in that episode as being someone who who cares for Moshe, who's who's concerned about him. And and so I think that he's able to be empathic for them because the underlying layers of his relationship with them are positive. And because they're positive, he's able to call upon that when in that moment of difficulty. But I think here there seems to be less positivity to, to draw upon and therefore it gets ugly. Uh, pretty quickly because there isn't, you know, I, I would think about that a lot, right? That it's, it's the pain that when someone you love insults you or pushes you into a very difficult point of conflict, it can create a lot of pain. But if you have many positive layers of relationship, you can obviously repair. Um, but the more shallow the relationship, uh, the more difficult it is. And the more you have to call upon a very high evolved self to be able not to be horribly uh, defensive um, because there's really nothing to rely on there. You don't have years of a relationship behind you. And so I think that Moshe and his siblings have something very special going on um, that he doesn't have that with other people in this Parsha. Does that make sense? Right. So um, there's something there's something really that, that rings true to me about that, right? Um, we talk a lot about trust building before you try to move forward to resolve conflict, right? Before you negotiate, you should always try to build some trust. Um, and the Midrash, when contrasting Hillel and Shammai and their machloket with the, mach, with the machloket of Korach, points out that Hillel and Shammai always ate in each other's houses and married each other's children. Mm-hmm. That there was some kind of 
intellectual engagement and disagreement, but uh, on the personal side, there was still trust and ability to interact with each other. Whereas here, you're not seeing that at all. No. You're just seeing people who are against something, right? And this also has echoes in, in many different countries and their political systems, what it means to unite against something as opposed to uniting for something, right? So this goes to the sort of rights as pie, right? I want to take away your rights or have you have less is different than I want us all to have more. We can do better. We've, d- we've all done poorly, right, at different points in our lives. We've all been Moshe, right? We lost our cool. We, we've also all been Datan and Aviran. We've refused to talk to a family member. We've attacked in a way that we know is deeply painful when we know it's not entirely their doing. We've wanted power. Right? We've all wanted power. We all thought we could do better than the person who has more power than us. We've all stirred the pot, right? This is the ultimate kach level, right? The pot stirrer. And we can all do better, right? Like that, it's a beautiful image that we haven't had a chance to unpack of a flowering rod that doesn't harm the other rods around it. And then it blossoms into almond blossoms like that, which is so beautiful when you look at them. There's something so beautiful about that. Although it's not ultimately humans who resolve this conflict. Yeah. I think um, one other thought that I would want to end with is the beginning of, of Paraguay Zion of chapter 17, where we have Elazar sweeping in here. There's a question why it's Elazar, not Aharon. Uh, one, mm-hmm. one opinion, sort of, it's because Aharon has already started to sort of pull back in his responsibilities. I personally mm-hmm. think that we have a little bit of a callback here to the episode of Our Own Sons and that we have there the Eish Zara, a similar language to the, the foreign or the misplaced fire. Um, and here it, it pointedly says in, Peric, in Pasuk Bed, in the second uh, verse of chapter 17, Ha'esh Zerehala, right? It's the play on of Eish Zara, but you should spread out sort of or, or scatter. And, and he comes in as sort of, again, I would say like this symbol of, of other, other brothers or family members who had, had misplaced passions. And, and they take these, these, these fire pans, right? They take these machtot. And this image of taking that which sort of created destruction and, and molding it. And in it creating a new function as part of the Mizbeach, I think is also this unbelievable image. You know, you said just now about about the almond branch. And I think that sort of we can usually mold or melt and reshape uh, things that happen, um, whether that's sort of a metaphor for gaining perspective or for starting to like look at things differently. That to me, the sort of the the melted machtot is sort of this beautiful image of of taking a really bitter moment of time uh, and being able to sort of reassign it a different a different identity. It was there. I'm not gonna pretend it wasn't there, but I'm gonna use that moment in time or that moment in our relationship to to build something else. I'm not gonna make it necessarily. It's not gonna 
only be pretty. It's still going to have that rough form that it had, but it's going to sort of adorn my life in a way that reminds me what I learned from that episode. So I think that both of those images of like the rod and also the the molded the sorry the melted machtot is is one that that I like to take away more than like the swallowing up right, and is evocative <laughs> for us of the ultimate image of peaceful resolution in Judaism, which is in Yeshayahu, right? Like that you're going to yes. take your swords and, and, and beat them into something constructive. It has, it has, it evokes that for us as well, for sure. Totally. Thanks for our conversation today. I'm so glad we got a chance to talk. I hope you've enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. I'm Dr. Yosefa Fogel-Rubel, and this is One-on-One Women Talk Torah, a series brought to you by Matan Women's Institute for Torah Study. Please do one-on-one and women's Torah learning a small favor by sharing this podcast with family and friends so that we can reach new listeners. You can stream and download these episodes on Spotify, iTunes, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Matan's website. Don't forget to leave us a five-star review in the comments. Please send us any feedback at podcast at matan.org.il. That's podcast at matan.org.il. Thanks for listening, everyone.